This episode may be supported by advertising depending on your location. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. This week, as Japan experiences yet another wave of coronavirus cases, Gerard Reedy, a senior editor at Bloomberg, discusses whether we might see a new state of emergency and the hope that's provided by the recent news about vaccines. Gerard Reedy, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. So we've not addressed coronavirus directly on Deep Dive since the summer, but unfortunately it is a virus that persists in this country and around the rest of the world. And Japan is currently in the midst of a new surge of cases. There is a ray of hope, which uh, we'll be discussing later on in the episode, with two vaccines showing some effectiveness late in their trial stages. But first, Gerard, where do things stand with coronavirus in Japan at the moment? Well, we're certainly in another serious phase uh, right now, kind of similar to what we saw in the summer in terms of we're seeing an increase in cases in a lot of different regions. We're seeing record numbers of cases nationwide. They're centered in a number of urban areas, obviously Hokkaido. Uh, and in particular, Sapporo is the most seriously uh, affected at the moment in terms of not the sheer number of cases, but the number of cases per population. Tokyo is consistently high and has kind of been on uh, another uptick again, kind of getting into the 300s. I would not be surprised if at the end of this week we see um, numbers in the 400s. And just nationwide, you're seeing a, a lot of um, hotspots uh, of the virus. And obviously, this is quite concerning as we get into into the winter months. We all knew, and you know, I think the, the, the government was very clear and the expert, uh, experts were very clear that there would be periods where the virus would uh, spike again. Mm. And the question is, how serious is this one going to be? And, you know, if you listen to the experts, they are, without meaning to be, to be alarmist, you know, they are concerned that there is always the potential for one of these spikes to get out of control or mm. to get kind of beyond where, where they can, can keep it. So this is the third rung of spikes that we've seen. And the question is whether it's going to remain similar to the, the one we saw in summer, where it dipped down again back towards more more what you'd consider controllable numbers, yep. or whether it's going to keep on increasing and, and end up with far more cases than we've seen so far in Japan. Exactly, yeah. Um, like you say, we are in kind of a similar position that we were, I think, you know, maybe in in late July where uh, people are concerned, uh, obviously, by the increasing numbers. You have to be sort of like slightly detached when you're having this conversation, but without too much economic pain and without having a state of emergency and without severely restricting economic activity in the summer, Japan was able to contain that increase mm. with some very light restrictions. As you say, the question is, are we going to see another repeat of that? Or is this going to be a case where, you know, I think we saw in some European countries where even countries that had previously handled the virus quite well were suddenly, as soon as it turned cold, were starting to see uh, very concerning and exponential mm. growth. And, you know, as we record this, I think it's very hard to tell which way that's going to go. Mm. 
I think it is uh, worth comparing the numbers in Japan to what we're seeing elsewhere in the world because Japan at the moment still has only just recently crossed the 120,000 cases nationwide threshold, yeah. which when you compare it to total. the US, total, yeah. yes, <laughs> across the entire year of the pandemic. Whereas when you compare it to the US where they're seeing more than that in a single day. Um, yeah, but, but how's this uptick, when we're looking at this recent uptick, is it different from previous surges we've seen at all or is it in, in the same order of magnitude or the, the same patterns are we seeing them happen again? Um, in terms of, I guess, the surges that we've had so far, the one that we had in spring that triggered the state of emergency, what was, what was so concerning about that and what, what made them take the action that they did take uh, at that time was the number of hospitalizations that they were seeing and the number of very, very serious cases. And of course, you have to remember that that was very early in the pandemic and, you know, treatments were were, you know, not that they were non-existent, but they were in very in very early stages and there wasn't um, a very clear idea of, of what to do. And the rate at which hospitals were filling up was, um, I think, the main deciding factor that, that made them decide to, to declare the state of emergency. What we saw in the summer and what we're seeing now seem to be, so, you know, to me, to, to be um, fairly similar on the surface in that, you know, you're seeing... Um, a lot of infections, not a huge increase in uh, the number of hospitalizations and serious cases and deaths, although obviously, you know, you are seeing uh, an increase. As we're recording now, the number of serious cases in, in Tokyo is higher than it was during the peak in summer. But in most regions, you're not seeing the medical system yet come under serious strain. And that's true even in, in Sapporo, which is at the heart of, of the, current, um, the, the, the current infection. There are, I think, though, um, some differences that have been highlighted so far. And the one that I think that, that is concerning the, the panel of experts is um, the different varieties in which the virus is spreading at the mm. moment. And what do you mean by that, different varieties? So in the summer, it was quite evident where initially where the cases were coming from. You know, they were coming from the so-called sort of like nightlife uh, entertainment districts. That was where they, they stemmed from. And then they kind of broadened out, but they were containable by, you know, the public health mm. um, authorities. Um, what seems to be concerning, um, you know, Professor Omi and, and, and Professor um, Oshtani and, and the other experts who are involved in this at the moment is that it's um, they're now seeing clusters in lots of different environments. Mm. And that is one of the things that, that it makes it more difficult for them to get it under control because you need different kinds of messaging, you need different kinds of tracking, you need um, different kinds of uh, monitoring, whether it's it's in uh, foreign communities, whether it's in, um, you know, workplaces, regular restaurants, regular people going down and, and having a meal. And that right now seems to be the concern. And as I understand it, there's also a higher number of asymptomatic cases that are coming in at the moment. Is this just because there's more testing that's picking them up? Um, that's a good question because I, I don't actually have a good uh, answer to that mm. um, right now. The testing situation itself is not hugely different than mm. it was in summer. Uh, nationwide in summer, they're doing about 20,000 um, tests a day. Uh, right now, that's, you know, that's up to 30,000, but then you would also expect that it would go up a little bit when 
they're um, contact tracing more and more people, and they're and they're trying to track mm. people down and, and have them and have them tested. It's also a lot easier now than it was in the summer to go in off the street, and um, if you're willing to to pay for it yourself, not covered by the national insurance, to get a PCR test, you can get one. You know, uh, right now, if you want, and presumably you have a certain amount of people uh, within that who are asymptomatic and either want to travel or they want to do something or they just want the you know the peace of mind. So that could. Lead lead to it, but I don't know if that really accounts for, for the differing, um, you know, the, the differing numbers that you're seeing now. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of theorizing at the moment about the different causes behind this recent surge. And you've mentioned one of them already, which is, you know, this, or the, the, the weather's getting gradually colder mm. and one of the things pointing towards this is the fact that Hokkaido, which is the most northerly and the coldest part of Japan, has kind of been at the leading edge of this recent surge in cases. Right. So how much of a worry is that to, to experts and to you as a reporter that, that we are getting into this colder period? There's a couple there's a couple of factors here that we should break down. In terms of the seasonality of the coronavirus, I think there's a lot that is not known yet. That certainly, you know, if you look at Europe um, right now, or if you look at, you know, the, the United States, you would suggest that there does appear to be some sort of seasonality involved, given that cases went down so much in the summer and have started to spike right around when it's when it's starting to turn cold. The, the other concern um, is the ability to ventilate properly, mm. which has been um, one of the things that I think Japan was on the, the you know the leading edge in terms of understanding how the virus uh, actually transmits. I think one of the other things that you are seeing is um, you know what, what they've kind of termed as being just sort of like human factors. People slipping out of their more kind of cautious stance towards the virus, maybe taking a little bit more risk. And, you know, individually to to one person, that risk might in fact be like quite low, Mm. but that adds up uh, over the over the population and i think there's also just kind of you know natural parts of that where it's uh, you know it's when it's cold you're going to be less inclined to throw open your your doors and windows all day in your mm. bar you know i mean even today at the japan times offices we had our windows open on the sixth floor and walking past and going it's pretty cold once the sun goes down (laughs) (laughs) and it is and it's even quite warm this week as well right and and you know um i I imagine if your offices were based in in sapporo you wouldn't be doing that um at all right i mean there are maybe some some other factors as well that that i think are are less their impact is less understood i think one thing that, that people express a lot of concern is the you know the go to travel campaign how much of an impact that has, I think, is not very well understood. Um, it's easy to kind of, I think, to look at the cases surging nationwide and especially places that people were encouraged to go mm. to and say, well, it must be the fault of people who were going there. But at the same time, you know, the, the, the go to travel campaign didn't start until it was almost, I think, kind of the peak of the the previous wave when Mm. the campaign started. So it wasn't responsible, you know, travel wasn't really responsible for spreading the previous wave. I just want to pause there and for any listeners who aren't 
in Japan right now and going, what is the go-to travel campaign? That's a government-subsidized domestic travel campaign, which is you know one of the key prongs right now to try and revitalize some of the local economies, considering that international tourism isn't possible to Japan at the moment. Yeah, it's, I think it's very easy to point to that. When I think about, you know, in a lot of other places are still saying, please, or other countries are saying, don't leave your counties or don't leave your states. And yet in Japan to actually have a domestic campaign that says you know why don't you experience mm. a, a far-flung corner of japan and and potentially travel from a big city like tokyo to right. an area where there are currently zero or very few cases right right i mean i i think we should um y- y- we should keep in mind is that you know travel in and of itself doesn't spread mm. the virus right and i think it is possible to to travel and to take adequate uh, precautions and to and, and to um not result in in the virus being spread you know there have been uh, the you know the government has said that um you know i think they said something in the region of 150 160 cases of people identified as taking part in go to travel who who were infected and that's out of i think nearly 40 million people who've who've availed of it at the same time that figure is somewhat disingenuous because it only includes people who were uh, themselves traveling but you know if i travel to hokkaido and i infect someone that person isn't counted because they mm-hmm. weren't on, you know, the go-to travel campaign. So I think the extent to to which it's, you know, it is to to blame, um, you know, if we can use that term, is um, is not very clear. Uh, at the same time, you know, we also shouldn't discount the very clear economic impact that that it has had. The path that Japan has chosen is different to to other countries, and it is based on trying to manage the virus at a manageable level while also building the economy. And that's why you know there are going to be, I think, trade offs like mm. the like like the go to travel campaign. And what about something like the Halloween celebrations that took place in Shibuya? Is that something that we should be worried about as a as a potential cluster, or something we should be more worried about at the time? Again, I think it's kind of one of those things where it's like it's it's a, a, an easy target, you know. The and and it is especially if you've you know you've been working from home for seven months um, or you've been trying to avoid crowds or whatever it is, arresting somewhat to look at like large crowds of young people and going around and having fun and drinking on the streets and stuff. You know, overall, I think the numbers were the numbers of people taking part were hugely down from a regular year. I was actually in Shibuya on the Friday night, which was, I guess it was the day before, and it was uh, it was pretty dead mm. when I was there. Um, I think on the Saturday night, things got a little bit, um, things got a little bit more um, excitable. At the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's one, it's kind of, it's one, uh, it's one event among many. I think it just kind of sticks out for, um, I think, particularly those of us in, you know, in, in the foreign community in Japan. There are, um, I think, other things that you could you could equally point to that would be possibly just as um, just as concerning. Would I say it had, you know, it had no impact at all? I, I think that's probably fairly uh, hard to, to disprove. You're setting up my uh, segues between each section very <laughs> nicely. Um you mentioned the foreign community just there and one of the things that has kind of kicked off at least on yeah guy cockage in twitter is <laughs> this press conference the other day whereby it was suggested that f- foreigners with their inability to understand japanese that's one of the reasons why there were clusters in certain foreign communities and this got i think taken out of context in a very large way 
Um, but could you explain that and <laughs> the insight or try to explain it and the, the um, insight you have there? I, I think that's a very good way to phrase it is that it got taken out of context. And I think there's kind of two stages at which, at which it got taken out of context. Um, so first of all, it, it was brought up in a, actually a couple of different press conferences last week by um, uh, Professor Olmi, who is the, the chair of the, the current um, panel of experts that, that advises the government. And they were very explicit in making clear that it was not to assign blame. It was to try and get the necessary support for communities that they're having a hard time reaching. You know, so it, it, it would be easy for the government to reach, you know, a Chinese community or a Korean community or, or whatever. But you can have, you know, much smaller communities of, of um, foreigners who maybe speak a language that uh, that the government doesn't have the, the ability to reach. So the government is concerned about, or I should say the panel of experts is concerned about their inability to um, get through to that community. And that goes both ways. It's also to, to learn that that community might have an infection because maybe they're, you know, more reluctant to to go to the doctor or they're not, you know, um, familiar with, with the medical with the medical system. So that was that was raised and, and it is um, fairly undeniable that these you know, clusters have happened. There have been some um, extremely large ones involving um, at least two of them involving um, more than 50 people uh, each. But as I say, the, the experts were not looking to assign uh, blame to, to that community, uh, to those communities. And in fact, they kind of went out of their way to avoid um, saying what communities they were, what nationalities they were. Now, that was it was amplified, I think, a little bit on the, um, on the Japanese news. And somehow I think on, um, yes, uh, English language speaker in Japan, Twitter, for, for, for all the worth uh, that is as a community, um, it, it did get amplified into um, the government is blaming foreigners for the pandemic. And, and, and that is um, clearly not what they were saying. So I think that was very much taken out of context, yeah. So since we've seen this recent uptick in cases, what government action has there been to try and slow down this increase? I think so far you're seeing a similar kind of pattern to what we saw in uh, in the summer. Uh, first of all, so within Hokkaido, obviously you have Sapporo, and within Sapporo you have um, Suzukino, the the red light district slash you know nighttime um, entertainment district there. So initially they started to crack down on the the opening hours and encouraging bars and restaurants to close early. That uh, wasn't sufficient, or or you know in and of itself um, in in Sapporo as of today they're calling on people to avoid um, unnecessary trips outdoors and they're calling on people to avoid traveling between Sapporo and, and other parts um, of the prefecture because obviously Sapporo is is very much at the the center um, of the outbreak there um, there are other prefectures that are considering taking more drastic steps uh, I believe uh, Miyagi prefecture yesterday was talking about the possibility that they might have to do their own state of emergency because there is a particular issue with the availability of hospital beds there. The government, uh, the national government, I should say, has hinted recently that they might have to take more stringent measures. Personally, I think that as in the summer, they will be very reluctant to do that and they will be limited in, in quantity because of the 
severe uh, economic impact that um, that they have. Certainly, Prime Minister Suga has well, he came out in support still of the go to travel campaign that we mentioned earlier, the domestic yep. travel campaign. Um, so it does seem like they're reluctant to take any widespread action now. So it doesn't feel like there's going to be a, you know, a new nationwide state of emergency anytime soon. I would think I would think that an, a nationwide state of emergency would be a very last step. I think what you'll see is you'll see gradually more more regional measures and more strict regional measures if they become necessary. And I, I guess, you know, from the perspective of the, you know, of the experts and the authorities, those regional measures uh, had a, a noticeable impact in the summer. Given the numbers that we're seeing in, in, in Tokyo, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, shortened hours in, in bars being raised again as, as, as a potential thing that they could do. But a, a nationwide state of emergency would be a huge step and, and really the economic damage that it does should not be uh, underestimated. I want to turn to something slightly more hopeful now, which <laughs> is the uh, recent news that's come over, come out last week and early this week, which is that there are two vaccines now that are showing a lot of promise in their late stage trials, success rates of over 90%. They still haven't been approved anywhere in the world, but you know, assuming they do, I think that's some light at the end of the tunnel. Does this provide hope for Japan? Um, I think it, it certainly does. I mean, I don't think it's going to be a, an overnight game changer. I don't think it's, spoiler alert for, for the movie Contagion, you know, wh- which I assume everyone has seen at this stage, where, you know, there's just like people lining up and get in and, you know, it's yeah. all taken care of. There's huge production uh, issues. Uh, there's issues in assigning who gets who gets it first um, and so on and so forth. Particularly the, the Pfizer um, vaccine has um, severe logistical issues. It has to be transferred transported at very cold temperatures. To be honest, it's probably less of a problem for Japan than it is for, you know, for developing countries where the infrastructure um, would be much harder to, to replicate. I think what it does is hopefully, like you say, it gives uh, a ray of hope and shows that, you know, this isn't going to this isn't going to last forever. There is an end coming to it. Um, and I think particularly for Japan's case, uh, this was obviously a topic of conversation this week, was it uh, gives some hope towards um the ability to put on the Olympics next mm. year in whatever capacity that is, you know, spectators, yes, no, I think that's that's still up for debate, although they, they do want to go ahead with spectators. But you can certainly see a path to getting 40,000 vaccines for the athletes who are going to be taking part and, and you know, and, and the staff involved and being able to put on the games in, in some fashion, which, again, I don't think should be underestimated how important it is, I think, both sort of psychologically and in terms of, you know, it's the 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 money that would be squandered um, if they if they had to uh, cancel the games. Mm. I think in quite a you know, successful moment of foresight for Japan, it's the government does already have two very large deals in place with both Pfizer and Moderna. Back in July, the end of July this year, Pfizer and the Japanese government signed a deal for 120 million vaccines to be delivered in the first half of 2021. Yeah. The more Recent news with the Moderna vaccine, the Japan government has an agreement for 50 million doses to be distributed in Japan by the end of 2021. So it's positioned itself very well to receive or to be at the front of the queue when 
those vaccines do become available. Absolutely. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Daichi Sankyo also has a deal with AstraZeneca, assuming uh, there's similar good data and assuming, you know, all of these or, or one of these vaccines makes it to um, to the final stage because there's still um, safety checks that haven't been fully completed uh, on those vaccines. But um, I think credit to the, you know, the I guess the, the the combination of sort of public and private industry in terms of like getting these deals signed off at, at a at a very early stage, and I do believe I hope I'm not um, speaking uh, or, or or spreading um, something that I'm not a hundred percent sure on, but I do believe that they have said that the vaccine will be distributed uh, to all. Uh, residents mm. for free. Yeah, I I, I've, I've read that as well. Yeah, so uh, that does provide you know a, a, a ray of hope, which um, you know is good to have in these times when the cases are increasing and the days are are getting shorter. I want to uh, wrap up by asking you a question. Um, relating to a, an article you wrote at kind of the very beginning of this pandemic, way back in March, and it was an article that was called Japan was expecting a coronavirus explosion. Where is it? This line in it that said, the looming question is whether Japan has dodged a bullet or is about to be hit. So six, seven, eight months? Mm. Eight months? <laughs> <laughs> eight months has passed since you wrote that article. I wonder how you're thinking about it now and whether, you know, this uptick could be the bullet that we're about to be hit by yeah i i um i had to go back and read that article again because i had no idea what was in it um until you until you brought it up i think the reason that that i wrote that article was that at the early stages of the pandemic i think a lot of people i certainly had this assumption that this i should say this mistaken assumption that you know if it spread it would spread you know, first from China to, you know, Mongolia or, you know, Vietnam or somewhere that, that borders China. Um, and then maybe it would spread from there to, to Japan, because obviously, you know, lots of people come in from, from Asia into, um, into Japan, because that's how SARS spread, right? And a lot of the assumptions that I think um, pandemic planning had around the world were based on SARS. Um, but then you have to like step back and think like how much the world has changed since 2003, how much air travel has changed, and particularly how much air travel has changed out of China since that since that happened. Japan was, I want to say, it was the second or third country outside China to have a to have a confirmed case, and especially with you know in February you had the Diamond Princess and you had you know a government response that I think could you know, most charitably be described as as um, start-stop in, in February and March. But what, what we discovered instead was that instead of it being Japan, that it was already, while we were warning about it and while I think the media's focus was on uh, cases like the Diamond Princess, that it was already spreading, you know, like wildfire throughout Europe and and in many countries that that didn't think that they that they would get um, that they would get hit, and you know certainly that I didn't think would be likely to get hit. So from from that perspective, Japan certainly has continued to to dodge the bullet in that. Whether through design or through luck, and I think a lot of it has more to do with the um, the right combination of experts that, that Japan was 
um, fortuitous enough to have who had the right experience and were able to inform um, the response. And I think that is what has prevented it from ever going, you know, like exponential in Japan. You know, to 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 your question, you know, is it um, you know has it dodged a bullet so far? Is it about to be hit? I think you know that's at this point in time that's that's unknowable. I think you know we we just have to hope that the the response that has been so relatively affected effective and and obviously you know we have to we have to to, to cage that term there. But we can look at other let's say look at, at many other developed economies where the the response has been less effective uh, and, you know, hope that that things continue to go in in the right path. Correct, Reedy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Since recording with Gerard yesterday on Tuesday evening, Tokyo has set a new single-day record for the number of positive tests for COVID-19, with 493 positive tests recorded today. On Thursday, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government is expected to raise the city's COVID-19 alert to the highest possible level in an effort to stop further spread of the virus. High case loads continue to be recorded across the rest of the country. Our guest today was Garod Ridi, a senior editor at Bloomberg News Japan. His Twitter feed is a font of knowledge for all things coronavirus related in Japan, and that's linked in the show notes. I'd also recommend visiting the Japan Times COVID-19 updates page, where all the latest COVID news from around the country is posted as it comes in. Before we go, one quick happy announcement. Last Saturday was Deep Dive's second birthday, which in podcast years makes it around 155. So I want to take this opportunity to say thank you to everyone who's been on the show over the last two years, to everyone who supported Deep Dive behind the scenes, and to you, the listener who stuck with us throughout it all. This year's definitely been somewhat of a challenge, keeping the pod going throughout the pandemic, but I hope you found it at times entertaining, at times enjoyable, and at the very least somewhat informative let me know follow me on twitter at omh boyd follow the deep dive account at japan deep dive or write the show a review wherever you can we'll be back next week enjoy the long weekend if you're in japan the weather's meant to be absolutely beautiful until next time though as always pod skare sama Thank you.